You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. What? Harassing people for their political beliefs. My Roy Cohn. Uh, this is, I'm Robert Evans. This <laughs> is Behind great. the Bastards. It's a podcast about terrible people. And I'm just going to cut right to the chase, as I already did. Today, we're talking about Roy motherfucking Cone. Oh, that my asshole. God. Joelle Monique is our guest. Joelle, Yo! producer at iHeartMedia. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm slightly unprofessional. I just bit into some peanut butter. I'm so sorry. I'm very Are you just hungry. doing yo? <laughs> very hungry. This has been my so favorite hungry. intro to an episode ever, you guys. Thank you. Joelle, what do you, what do you know about Roy Cone? Okay, so the good fight... It was one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Had like a very like strong leaning Roy Cohn arc. I want to say season two. There's okay. a song was it called set Roy- in the past. No, no, no. It's a, it's it basically was an opportunity uh, to educate people about how Trump could about, get away with some of the things uh, he was getting away with. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yes, because so Roy Cohn that, is that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in that they made this song, which I think you'll really appreciate. It's called Roy Cohn Loves to Party. There's an animated yep. segment that goes along with it. It's peak excellence. And so I know, like a two minute, real quick history yeah. of Roy Cohn. I know he's. An awful human. A monster. Um, yeah, a real <laughs> yeah. terrible, terrible guy. Yeah. So I'm excited to find out how terrible today. 
What, what's funny about Roy Cohn is that if you kind of measure him objectively against the standards of, you know, a lot of the people we talk about on this show, he doesn't seem that bad. Like, he's he's a bad person, but he, he's not like Stalin or Hitler. But he wasn't murdering. He's, he was such an unpleasant, well, he may have. He was oh. such an unpleasant human being that his name has become kind of like a byword for a, a monster. Like, he's, <laughs> he's up there just because of what a piece of shit he was to everyone around him and it's kind of amazing if you watch documentaries there's a great documentary um called where's my roy cone that interviews people who knew him and like at least two of like there, there are multiple people in that documentary who are friends of his who describe him as evil <laughs> like just because oh my god it's like oh yeah we i hung out with roy but he was evil like he was he's absolutely was the the embodiment of human evil <laughs> wow how could you I wonder what yeah. was he bringing to that friendship that they were like. We'll talk I just about skip over that. the evil part. He was he was kind of a great friend. Um, oh, that yeah. kind of friend. No, it's awkward yeah. when you have like yeah. a super bitch of a friend, but she's good to you, and so she's she good keeps to all you the evil and a monster. Away from you. Yeah. Yes, I like kind of get it. <laughs> yeah, it's the kind of friend where you're like, yeah, I know they are a monster, but also if I ever need them, they will burn the world down for me. Um, my personal monster. Yeah, yeah, that's that's who Roy Cohn was. Um, <laughs> and it's one of the we'll talk about his relationship with Trump later. It's what Trump learned a lot from Roy Cohn. The thing he never learned from Roy Cohn was how to be loyal, because that is something Cohn was good at to his actual friends. He was very loyal and they weren't to him because it, it just turns out when you're friends with people who can be friends with a person who is pure, unadulterated human evil. They're not good at being loyal to you, even if you are to them. It's fun. It's a fun story. Uh, that documentary. <laughs> Where's my Roy Cohn? I do recommend watching. It gets its name from something Donald Trump said when uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused himself during the Mueller probe. President Donald Trump reportedly cried out, Where's my Roy Cohn? in a moment of panic <laughs> and fear. Um, yeah. So. We're going to talk all about that today. Roy Cohn was a lawyer. Uh, it's accurate to say that, but just saying like that's describing Roy Cohn as a lawyer uh, is such an incomplete explanation of who he was as to be totally inaccurate. Roy Cohn was a blackmail artist, a political fixer of the highest order, maybe the best there ever was, a man famous for being infamous and a man who weaponized sociopathy more effectively than any other political actor in U.S. history. He's a he's a hoot of a dude. <laughs> he he created the shortcuts to help us get where we got today. Thank yeah, you, Roy. yeah. He he's the man who built both Roger Stone and Donald Trump. Like he's what he a sucks. legacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a, what a he's a oh. remarkable piece of shit. Yeah, um, he's I, you, you love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Roy Marcus Cohn was born on February 20th, 1927 in the Bronx, New York City. He was the only child of a wealthy Jewish couple, Dora and Albert. His father, Albert, was a judge and a major figure in the local Democratic Party. Uh, as a result, Roy grew up with politicians of all stripes dropping by his home for dinners and cocktail parties. So he's 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 born into the political upper crust you know from from I'm childhood seeing the snobby rich kid evolving like oh yes he he learned he was one of those kids who spoke like an adult way too early you were like how yes do you know these things yes yes absolutely like his parents let him drink at the cocktail parties absolutely and they he did. thought he was an adult when he was really yeah. just an obnoxious trash <laughs> child yeah he was definitely drinking at the adult table from a young age there was uh, no kitty table for him 
no, no, no. And obviously, like he uh, he came from money, uh, and not just like judge money, but his family has like wealth on all sides of it. His great uncle was the founder of the Lionel Corporation, uh, which oh, wow. makes they make toy trains, uh, and were for a while the largest toy manufacturer on the planet. Uh, Roy's maternal uncle Bernard Marcus was the president of the Bank of the United States. Um, oh, okay. So again, ton of money in this family, uh, and obviously the fact that Bernard was the president of the Bank of the United States added to the family's gravitas and importance until October 29th uh, of 1929 when the stock market oh, crashed and the Great Depression got going because the Bank of the United States was one of the main things that caused, like, its collapse caused the Great Depression. Now, Roy was too young to remember much of what happened at the time, the stress and the panic. Uh, it would have been passed on to him, though, by the adults around him, especially because his uncle's bank was blamed for sparking the stock market crash. This wasn't entirely fair because a lot of people in a lot of banks were to blame for the Great Depression, but Bernard Marcus was the head of the bank that was most implicated, and he was also a Jew. So, um, he got blamed. He became like the scapegoat of the financial crash. America um, loves a scapegoat. We can't we can't hold yeah. everyone responsible, but we can't blame yeah. you and say you did it. Yeah, so Bernard Marcus is Jewish. The Bank of the U.S. is heavily frequented by Jewish immigrants, and everybody's angry at Jewish people when the economy collapses because racism uh, so, yeah, uh, Bernard Marcus actually becomes the only banker to go to prison for the financial crisis for the Great Depression. Are like they pick kidding? one and it's the Jewish guy. <laughs> Lord Jesus, that's awful. Which is not to say that he didn't do anything, because he he definitely did. But sure. it was he did not. He should certainly shouldn't have been the only banker to go to prison. <laughs> he didn't row that boat alone. He didn't single handedly mm-hmm. tank our economy. Come on now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so he. This is like a huge fact of shame for the Cone family. Uh, and to sure. this day, Cone survive. Roy Cone's surviving relatives consider the case to have been a matter of scapegoating. Um, because again, he was the only banker to go to jail. Um, and this really left an impact on Roy because he visited his uncle in prison when he was a small child. Some of Roy's earliest memories were seeing his uncle Bernard in Sing Sing. One of his cousins mm. later wrote, quote, that left Cone determined to beat the establishment. So from oh. an early age, you got to think about it this way. He grows up thinking like, yeah, we're Jewish, but like we're part of the ruling class, the wealthy class. Mm -hmm. And we're all it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Christian or whatever, as long as you're in that upper crust. And then when a crisis hits, it turns out that we're not all part of the same thing because all of the other Mm -hmm. rich people blame the Jew. Right. Like that's the way it goes. Yeah. I didn't expect um, to have any sort of empathy in this episode at all. But as somebody who understands the realization of racism, like, oh, me? Yeah. Uh, a, t- a, a fragment of empathy for baby yeah. Roy Cohen before he becomes the evil we know him to be today. Yeah, this has an impact on the evil because he realizes like, oh, money won't protect me. Even like from like the fact that I'm different actually does matter. We're not all the same, even though we're rich. And so I just like I am now I like I'm not a part of the establishment, so I must be at war with it. That's that's the idea that Roy Cohn, baby Roy Cohn, grows up with. (laughs) Yeah, he sure did. Lord. Yeah. Uh, it's super fun. So a family friend who was around at the time claimed, quote, the family had been absolutely shamed when Bernard Marcus went to prison. Roy kept a scrapbook as a little boy of all the pictures of his uncle Bernie Marcus. He would show them to his babysitters. Once his what? mother saw him doing this and she yelled and took the scrapbook away because he loved his uncle. 
He was proud of his uncle. He had like a scrapbook of his uncle um, who was like a big figure in his life. And his mom wanted to like pretend he didn't exist after this. I wish there was a child psychologist here to like break down the child purposefully uncovering what the family has tried to hide and shame to be like, no, this guy is good. And they're just like, no, hide that. And what does that do to your psych? psyche that says if you make a mistake also we will just remove you from our yeah the scrapbook thing is like i like my i don't have a scrapbook i'm one of my relatives it's just so weird yeah it's it's i mean i you know it's it's sweet he clearly cared about his uncle um and his mom is telling him no 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 he made a mistake so we don't celebrate his existence anymore which yeah you're right joel that has to that transmits a message to a growing little boy yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and it's not a good one (laughs) don't fuck up okay Mm -hmm. you can be disappeared is his mother actually queen elizabeth that's my question (laughs) i mean emotionally yes so fair enough Despite the family shame, Roy's father remained a judge and a connected person in Democratic Party politics. When Roy was 10, his father introduced him to his first president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So again, age 10 is when this kid starts hobnobbing with the president, not just the president, a president of the United States, but like the president of the United States, because no president's ever had more power than fucking FDR. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, that's who Roy's hanging out with at age 10. Uh, he started giving speeches at political rallies the year before when he was nine, and he was so comfortable talking shop that as soon as he met FDR, he told the president he agreed with his plan to pack the Supreme Court. So that's like this 10-year-old what boy meets happening? FDR, and the first thing he's like is like, yeah, you got to increase the, the number of people in the Supreme Court so that you can rule unchallenged, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where his head is. So the Cone, the Cone family, as you might have guessed, was not what we would call healthy. In fact, Roy's parents' marriage is generally described as loveless. I found oh. a, yeah, yeah, well, what did you, I mean, did you expect there was a lot of love in that relationship? <laughs> I'm always shocked when I hear about loveless marriages. I'm like, how did you survive? But also, I, I understand um, the era, you know, mm-hmm. the marriages of convenience and or this is a financial person yeah. in my bracket who won't steal from me. So yeah, this is hitched. a political marriage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I found a fun article in the rap by David Marcus, who is the son of Roy's first cousin. Uh, and by the way, his dad, David's dad refused to talk to Roy Cohn for decades. Now, David <laughs> grew up to be a journalist and obviously like as a journalist with Roy Cohn as an uncle, you're going to interview him and he did interview Roy several times uh in 2019 he wrote an article titled five things you may not know about my vile malicious cousin Roy Cohn which is quite a listicle can we we talk about the 360 of like Roy trying to show photos of his like Mm -hmm. imprisoned uncle to then his nephew sharing with the world via a paper, the yeah. horribleness of his uncle. There's something very balanced about it's a this, fun, like, yeah. uncle-nephew relationship. <laughs> it's a fun family. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he wrote, he, re- he writes this about Roy Cohn's mother. Quote, My relatives couldn't stand Roy's overbearing mother, Dora Marcus Cohn. She was the original helicopter parent, long before anybody knew that term, fussing over her only son's grades, appearance, and relationships. When Roy went to sleepaway camp, Dora rented a room down the road. He lived with his mother until she died when he was 40. So, (laughs) some Norman Bates vibes coming off this boy. 
Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, man. Listen, kids, we're not talking about you. We understand financial straits and everything. But if you could afford to not live with your yeah. mother. If you and- are a wealthy lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in an era where that people used to clown on people so hard for still living with their mm-hmm. parents. You know, that's uh, yeah. that's what we call an unhealthy relationship. Yeah. He's not like a living with his mom. One, perhaps. Because like he's got to take care of her or because like he's living with his mom because he, he can't imagine what to do without her for until he's 40. Um, Yikes. Yeah, you get the feeling it wasn't, there was some, yeah, there was there was absolutely some weird shit going on there. So by the 1940s, the family fortunes had recovered and the Cones were again at the center of a deeply influential network of New York socialites and politicos. As soon as Roy was a teenager, his parents pushed him to attend their parties. According to one of those guests, Roy took naturally to politics, socializing and schmoozing like an old veteran. One attendee later recalled, It was extraordinary to see 10 grown-up couples and then sit next to a 15-year-old. Roy was always on the scene. He fit right in. One of his friends later told an interviewer, when he was 16, he was 40. Yeah, those kids are not okay. This is the same kind of excuse we hear about, like, (laughs) when we see very, very young girls with older men. They're like, oh, well, they seem so mature. Mm -hmm. That person needs help. Yeah, Help them. Get but them she's out of 17. The yeah, right. It's not okay. Yeah. Uh, your genius does not make you mature, nor does it give you the years of experience yeah. that you need to navigate situations with actual adults. Well, and in, it's a bit different in Roy's case because, like, he's not in a relationship with these people, but they're the ones he's socializing with, and they lead him to. I, I don't think Roy ever had a childhood. And I'm not That's sure he saying, ever. Yeah, though. exactly. Yeah. That's the sad. Like it was stolen from him because he never had the opportunity to be treated like a child. Yeah. You know, and then then you don't know the joys of childhood, which makes you a very weird, bitter old adult. Yeah, which he absolutely is a weird, bitter old adult. So as a rich kid, Roy's peers were from similarly august backgrounds. His buddy Generoso Pope Jr. grew up to be the owner of the National Enquirer. You wonder why that magazine is so close to. Donald Trump. His friend Cy Newhouse oh, wow. Jr. became the wait, publisher wait, of the wait, National Enquirer. Wait, wait, wait. What? <laughs> that was really quick to go over. Yeah. Just like yeah. L- let that sink in. Yeah, his second. Roy's best buddy grew up to be owned the National Enquirer. His other best friend became the publisher, and then Roy became Donald Trump's good friend, and Donald Trump has had a lifelong positive relationship with the National Enquirer. Yes, I just What's wanted so you to say that? it one more time. Yeah. What? Just <laughs> yeah. so much in one little wow. sentence. Roy Cohn's friend Richard Berlin became the chairman of Condé Nast, and his friend Bill Fugazi grew up to be the owner of a massive travel and limousine company. So wow. these are Roy Cohn's childhood buddies. Like, the act, the only kids he spends his time around grow up to be those people. And they're inheriting a lot of what they get, right? Like, they're not yeah. founding that shit, you know? Mm-mm. And if they are, they're inheriting a bunch of money to found that shit. So from an early age, Cohn showed a strong inclination towards what would become his life's work. He ran what his biographer calls the Roy Cohn Barter and Swap Exchange while he was in junior high school. This was an influence and information peddling racket. Roy wrote a gossip column for his local newspaper, and he would trade stories and manipulate the stories he published in exchange for favors from popular kids. What? Yeah. What? What? How? Okay, I just, so many things have just happened in my head. First of all, yeah, there's a lot going on there. I had no idea Roy Cohen was actually Dan Humphrey from Gossip Girl, which actually makes so much sense. Uh, And then the idea of like a 12 or 13 year old, like, again, having the foresight and knowledge to understand how an operation like that could work. 
seems just like the most batshit thing I've ever heard. Like, I'll lie for you. Yeah. Spread that lie. And, you know, you, you kick, kick me back some favors. Do we know what kind of favors he was getting in exchange? They were like, he got jobs and stuff as a kid over this stuff. <laughs> and you have to assume he got like invites to parties and whatnot. Like it it was, uh you know, it, it was not the kind of favors he would be getting later, but he's experiment because later his favors would be stuff like getting people in or out of prison. Um, right. But he's, he's, he's starting to learn how if you have control of a media organ, you can get things from people by either planting stories about them or refusing to plant stories about them. Um, like that's he's trading gossip for favors. Um, and he's learning how to do that again as a teenager. And he's learning to do that within the context of a high school, but he's also spending all of his time talking to adult politicians. And you can he's putting this stuff together. Like he knows right, what right. he's going to be. Roy Cohn knew what he wanted to be from a very young age. And it was always a shady political fixer. He's you look at what Rudy Giuliani is doing these days, and he's bad at it. Rudy Giuliani is oh, terrible. 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 You can't even file a lawsuit correctly, sir. Please yeah. walk out the door. Roy Roy Cohn is the good version of that. And not good in a moral sense, but good in Roy was good at this. Um, he knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. And you can see the reason Donald Trump keeps having Giuliani do all this shit is because he's desperately wants to have a Roy Cohn. But he doesn't. Because there was only one. Trump, but I really feel like yeah. there's got to be somebody more capable. <laughs> Giuliani. You know, not not who's also capable of the same kind of loyalty. That's the thing. Mm. Giuliani's loyal to the president, at least so far, but incompetent. Roy was loyal and competent. And that that's what Trump wants. But sadly, we'll talk about why Roy, Co Roy Cohn ain't around no more. So <laughs> Roy went to the kind of elementary and high schools that rich kids get to attend, the ones that cost mm. as much as a small house for a year of tuition. He went to Columbia Law School and he graduated at age 20 with both a bachelor's degree and a law degree. So like God very, damn, very smart kid. Um, yeah. So age 20, he's out of college. He's a he's a he's a he's a an, an admitted to the bar lawyer and he is ready to make his mark on the world using his father's connections. He gets a job at the U.S. attorney's office for the Southern District, and he got the gig the same day that he was formally admitted to the bar. In case you're wondering what kind of impact his judge dad had on all that. The day he becomes a lawyer, he's working for the U.S. attorney's office. Like that's very convenient. Yeah, it helps. Now, for reasons that are not exactly clear to me, Roy became fascinated with what was seen as the looming threat of Soviet influence on the United States. His interest drew him in 1951 to the job of prosecuting Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for espionage. Now, do you know much about the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg case? I feel pretty educated on it. Yes. But it, I definitely need to hear more. <laughs> yeah, it's the Rosenbergs were committed communists, and Julius was an electrical engineer with connections to all manner of sciency folks. He spent years in the Army Signal Signal Corps, and he fed the USSR information about a bunch of different U.S. weapons technologies. At one point, even smuggling his handler a complete proximity fuse. So Julius is absolutely a spy for the Soviet Union, um, and and giving them a lot of stuff. Uh, he was eventually fired from the Army when it was revealed that he had been a member of the Communist Party in the 30s, but he remained good at meeting sciencey folks who were involved in the Defense Department, and one of the folks that he met after getting fired from the Army was working on the Manhattan Project. Now, there's a lot of debate over exactly how helpful the nuclear secrets that he stole were, and I think the, the consensus is that the, the USSR would have developed a bomb in more or less the same time frame without Julius Rosenberg, but he did give them information on the A-bomb, and the Pentagon was, you know, the, the Soviet Union in the late 
late 40s, comes out with an A-bomb of their own. And the Pentagon is really surprised because they had thought it would take the Soviets a lot longer to make an A-bomb. And they assume that the only way they could have possibly built it is if a spy had given them all of the information. And again, Uh the Soviets had really good scientists, in part because they stole scientists from the Nazis too, in part because they just had good scientists. Like, they didn't need... It, it's probable that they would not have needed what Julius provided them with to have built the A-bomb, but he had he had provided them with some secrets. And when he was eventually found out, the defense in, uh, establishment uses him as a scapegoat for the entire fact that a nuclear arms race started, right? They need someone to blame for the fact that the Soviets have a bomb, and they blame Julius Rosenberg. They also blame his wife, Ethel Rosenberg. Now, Ethel had been an actress, and there remains debate as to the exact extent of her involvement. She was charged with being a full party to her husband's espionage. So she is charged with being uh, just as much of a spy as her husband. Um, now, a lot of information has come out since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, and it suggests that while she was aware of and approved of her husband's activities, she was probably not playing an active role in spreading atomic secrets. And there was evidence at the time that she was not playing an active role in spreading atomic secrets. Um, They didn't have any evidence that she was. But Roy Cohn wanted both Rosenbergs convicted and executed. He didn't just want Julius executed. He wanted Ethel executed as well. Um, And... Yeah, I'm going to quote from a a write-up in the magazine forward. Quote... The case that made him the espionage trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg was a prime example of Cohn's law-skirting tactics and the demons that propelled his career. Cohn saw the case as an opportunity to make his name as a ruthless prosecutor and recoup the status his family had lost. He had a score to settle, said one person. When Cohn was vicious in pushing for Ethel and Julius Rosenberg's execution, illegally communicating with Judge Irving Kaufman, who ironically called Cohn from a phone booth outside the Park Avenue synagogue, he may have been trying to lift the stigma of family shame. He was responding, his relatives suggest, not just to anti-communist animus, but to its inevitable link to Jews like him. He was the definition of a self-hating Jew, Cohn's cousin David Marcus says in the film. He wanted to show the world that he wasn't Jewish. So... Cohn's family are Jewish people scapegoated for the Great Depression. And then when Jewish people, when he has a chance to scapegoat another Jewish couple as responsible for the Russians getting the bomb, he does that in part to kind of wipe the shame away from his family and prove we're loyal Americans. Like, the wow. this Jewish family, like, is are traitors, but, like, the people prosecuting him and the judge, we're loyal Jews. Like, that's kind of the thing that's co- going on in Cohn's head. some real house slave shit. Like, yeah. That's, just to be honest about it, like, this yeah. idea that you could cleanse your family by destroying another yeah. is, uh, I mean, it explains a lot about him and his ideology yeah. as it's, a whole. It's pretty dark. Um, Now, Roy's defining moment in the trial came during his cross-examination of David Greengrass, Ethel Rosenberg's brother. The prosecution had initially relied upon getting Ethel to testify against her husband in exchange for clemency, but she refused to talk. This pissed off Roy, but it also left the state in a bind because there was no hard evidence that Ethel Rosenberg had done anything. So Cohn went to David, who had helped with the espionage, and promised him that if he lied about his sister's role in the conspiracy, David and his wife would get lesser sentences. Greengrass later admitted to lying on the stand at Cohn's direction, but it didn't matter. Ethel was convicted. So Cohn goes to this guy, says, like, I'll make sure you and your wife don't get ex. You get lesser sentences if you say that Ethel was a part of the espionage. And David gets up in court and he lies about Ethel Rosenberg's complicity in the espionage. And so she gets convicted. 
um, along wow. with Julius, who, you know, for whatever you want to say about how fair or unfair the penalty was, Julius was guilty of espionage. He did um, the crime. But he did like, the crime. It's wild to me that, like, it seems, especially in this era, like, not a lot, not a lot of women prisons, not a lot of females nope. behind bars, certainly not a lot being executed. It's kind of intense that, like, how much his own self-hate was. Yeah. As far as, like, if, if that is in truth what stemmed a lot of these decision-making, like, the idea of, like, no, we got to fry them all is, like, just intense and horrifying. Yeah. Now, um... Here's the thing that's fun about America in this period of time is no American at this point in time, when Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are being tried, no American had ever been executed for treason or espionage outside of war, outside of a war. So that hasn't happened. So people are talking about like most people who are like, well, yeah, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are probably guilty. They need to be punished. Don't want them. A lot of people don't want them to be executed because we don't do that as a country at this point. Right. right that's the idea. Right. That's not what we are. We don't kill people outside I mean, of a war coming, for engaging in this. And we're coming hot off the Geneva Convention. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so all pretty just recent. Established all these laws and stuff about how to conduct yourself. Wow, okay. But Roy Cohn wants them dead. And as it turned out, now normally the prosecutor's not supposed to have any say in in the punishment. That's, you know, the judges. In this sort of a case, that's the judges' uh, purview. But Cohn would wind up having a strong say in her punishment. He later claimed, number one, that he had pulled strings to make sure that Kaufman was the judge who got the case. There's no (laughs) evidence that this was true, except for the fact that Kaufman called Roy Cohn repeatedly when he had questions about the case, which kind of suggests that Kaufman was indebted to Roy Cohn. And again, he's in his 20s at this point. (laughs) So the judge was calling Roy and being like, yo, I have some questions about this case. Yeah. Ah! Most, most particularly, the judge is calling Roy Cohn and saying, hey, should I execute? Should I have these people executed? Is that fair? Like that, that's the kind of shit that like he's, he's, he's coming up to them with. Um, Wow. Yeah, so, which is pretty dark. Um, yeah. And, and of course, Roy Cohn is like, yeah, absolutely, you should be, you should kill these people. Um, you win my case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? So, yeah, the, again, like, yeah. Uh, so the judge calls Roy on the phone and is like, I don't know, I feel like weird about executing these people. We've never done that before in this kind of context. What do you think I should do? And like, should I, should I execute uh, Ethel as well. And Roy is like, yes, you should execute them both. And he tells the judge, the way I see it, she being Ethel is worse than Julius. So he's he's whole hog like, yes, you need to have these people hung um, or ex- like electrocuted. They were electrocuted. But yeah. I wonder if the silence. Now, listen, I'm not a psychologist, listeners, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to play one for a second here. I wonder if like part of the reason he was like, she's worse is because she was willing to not say anything and this idea of like possibly this couple representing his parents and the idea of their like hiding and then being part of the downfall of America during the Great Depression. I wonder if there are are links in his brain to those things. Yeah, you think you get the feeling. Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. What a fucked up guy. Robert. Yeah, he's. Do you know what time it is? Oh, is it time for products and services? Perhaps. You know who <laughs> won't order the executions of a probably innocent woman and her husband during peacetime for espionage? I really hope it's our 
uh, our sponsors and the product <laughs> yeah, and services. Yeah, that, that is provide. that's the only standard we have for our our our, our products <laughs> is the Julius and Ethel Rosenberg case. We ask all of them about it, uh, and all of them say. That happened decades before you were born. Why are you asking us about this? None of these companies existed at that point in time. And we demand a response. And that's why we have so very few advertisers. They think it's weird. A lot of people think it's weird. Here's ads. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com behind. That's mintmobile.com behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. We're back. Uh, so, Judge Kaufman, having consulted with Roy Cohn, uh, sentences both Rosenbergs to die, telling them in court, I consider your crime worse than murder. I believe your conduct in putting into the hands of the Russians the A-bomb years before our best scientists predicted Russia would perfect the bomb has already caused, in my opinion, the communist aggression in Korea, with the resultant casualties exceeding 50,000 and who knows, but millions more of innocent people may pay the price for your treason. Indeed, by your betrayal, you undoubtedly have altered the course of history to the disadvantage of our country. No one can say that we do not live in a constant state of tension. We have evidence of your treachery all around us every day for the civilian defense activities throughout the nation are aimed at preparing us for an atom bomb attack. 
So he's not wrong that Russia getting the bomb made everybody scared, but also not really right in saying that the fact that Russia, number one, that the Rosenbergs were responsible for Russia getting the bomb earlier, but also like, you know, the fact that the United States was had been so willing to use the bomb on Russia before they got a bomb of their own might be responsible for some of the paranoia and fear. Like the fact that, you know, Truman dropped the bomb on Japan largely to scare Russia and the fact that MacArthur attempted to use the bomb on Korea and had to be forced, you know, there's... There's a lot going on there. Anyway, internationally, the cause of the Rosenbergs became one of the first major anti-American movements of the post-war era. And remember, fucking post-World War II, basically everybody likes the United States, like very popular country worldwide because, you know, the Nazis and we're not the Nazis. And a lot of refugees had come here and like not to say that the horrible things the U.S. had done, you know, genocides of the Native Americans and slavery and stuff hadn't happened. But like internationally, pretty popular country in 1946. (laughs) Those were our golden days. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Industry booming. Yeah. Happy. Yeah. People are pretty happy with us. The the fact that we condemn the Rosenbergs to execution pisses off a lot of people. And again, starts like one of the first international anti-American movements. A lot of people thought they were innocent, and those who didn't feel they were innocent at least felt that the punishment didn't fit the crime. Marxist John Paul Sartre described the whole conviction as a legal lynching which smears mm. with blood a whole nation. By killing the Rosenbergs, you have quite simply tried to halt the progress of science by human sacrifice. Magic, witch hunts, autos de fe, sacrifices. We are here getting to the point. Your country is sick with fear. You are afraid of the shadow of your own bomb. Mm. Which is very I, much what's happening. We invite, we yeah. invent a doomsday device and assume we'll be the only ones to ever have it. And then when we have to fear it, we're like, oh God. This is what we were doing to the rest of the world, but we don't. Everybody else is mm-hmm. evil. We've never done anything yeah. like, yeah, and and it continues today. So yeah. much fun. Yeah, our country's really so, stupid. It's really yeah, yeah. So the United States and President Eisenhower did not listen to international outrage. The Rosen and there's huge protests in the United States too, by the way. Sure. Thousands and thousands of people taking to the streets. Um, nobody in the government listened. The Rosenbergs were executed on June 19th, 1953. Julius's execution went smoothly enough, but the first several shocks failed to kill Ethel. The executioner oh. was forced to repeat the process so many times he nearly lit her on fire. Smoke Jesus was pouring Christ. out from her head. It was and remains a profoundly gross story, and a lot of people at the time knew it was disgusting. Many of Roy Cohn's family were horrified about his actions. He later told a reporter with pride, I very early in my life broke with tradition and left my Jewish upper class oriented life in New York and became a contradiction of everything I was supposed to stand for. Yikes. Yeah. So he knows Um, what he's doing. Yeah, it's really great to shit on your entire family and everything they stood for. Cool. Yeah. So there were, of course, people who deeply appreciated Cohn's tactics and motivations. One of them was J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. <laughs> the two struck up a fast friendship and would actually exchange Christmas gifts for more than 20 years, if you're looking at the kind of guy who Roy <laughs> genuinely appreciates, and vice versa. One reporter described the two as ideological soulmates. Cone wow. became the F- yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't wow. want to be you don't want to be Jadger Hoover's soulmate. <laughs> no, you do not. Uh, real bad person. So Cone became the FBI's unofficial liaison to the press. And I'm going to quote here from the L.A. Times. 
Anything Hoover wanted to plant about someone, friend or foe, he directed to Cohn. So reliable was this gossip network that Walter Winchell's secretary, and Walter Winchell is a a very influential gossip columnist at the time, dutifully awaited Cohn's reputation-destroying phone calls. When they wanted to stick it to somebody, former Rep. Neil Gallagher told Von Hoffman, who's Roy's biographer, that was Roy's job. Oh, man. To be wealthy and be able to destroy somebody with yeah. a phone call yeah. is power I don't think I will ever possess. No, that uh, is Roy Cohn. Absolutely. That is just – it's it's too much power. Yeah. It's too, way too much power to just be like, I don't like you. Mm-hmm. LA Times, print me something up bad about this guy. <laughs> Who cares about facts? Yeah. And we what are what's journalism? fun about this episode is you know that Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire song? Mm. There's like five different people who are named in that song that are in this episode, including Roy Cohn. He's right before one pour on. Like, yeah. Also, Walter Winchell and Joe McCarthy, who we're about to talk about, is in the song. So, yeah, this is really, we're really burning through that song here. <laughs> Love it. So, it was Hoover who introduced young Roy Cohn to a man who would come to define the early part of his career, Senator Joseph McCarthy. <laughs> another gem of a person. <laughs> another another real hero. In short order, Roy became the senator's right-hand man as the Red Scare kicked up into high gear. And this is where we need to peel away from Roy Cohn for just a moment to talk about the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC. It was established in 1938 by a Congress fuck named Martin Dees, and at first it wasn't entirely a bad thing. There were a ton of Nazi organizers and spies in the United States doing their best to cockslap American democracy, and the Dees Committee, which turned into HUAC, helped to identify and punish some of these guys. So, not entirely a bad thing if there's Nazis in your country. Probably out of... Deal with that. Probably they should a, leave right into the fuck yeah, now. Yeah, you should probably have a committee who's responsible for being like, we got to get these Nazis out of here, huh? It, it Unfortunately, does make me happy when you read a paragraph that I can tell you were you felt good about when you wrote it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, as is always the case with the U.S. government, the committee's attention soon turned away from the dangerous right-wing activists to left-wing activists. HUAC was at the forefront of an unhinged and fundamentally irrational investigation into Hollywood communists. So they go from like, <laughs> actual Nazis trying to destroy the gu- the country, uh, trying to destroy democracy, to, and there's some commies in Hollywood who think people ought to have healthcare and shit. Yeah, it's very funny. Um, and the, the list of people in Hollywood that HUAC investigates is just fundamentally absurd. Humphrey Bogart made the list, as did Clark Gable and 10-year-old Shirley Temple. That bitch. 10-year-old Shirley Temple. She's <laughs> dancing with the blacks, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's fundamentally But she's a com- Tommy Badge, didn't you know? <laughs> yeah, because she's dancing with black people. Yeah, can't have that shit. She's hiding uh, she all her at- secrets in each one of her individual curls. <laughs> and- I'm, I'm trying to imagine like J. Yeah. Edgar Hoover listening to Shirley Temple's phone calls at 10. Yeah. Is she talking to her grandmother? <laughs> she's like, animal it- crackers. And my- he's like, what's that code for? What is that code for? <laughs> she's got to break him out of the zoos. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's very funny because when I was a kid, like Shirley Temple was like the symbol of American innocence in the 1950s. And the reality is that at age 10, she was interrogated by the FBI as to the nature of her connections to the Communist Party. Jesus Lord. Oh, my. It's so good. You'd have to be like, this is unhinged. If you're part of, if you're like probably one of like three sane people. Are you kidding me? And you're like, what is going on? 
Yeah, there was there was briefly a tiny amount of rationality crept into things in the like during World War II. And I'm going to quote from a write-up in the Minnesota playlist about that. World War II put a stop to these activities. But in 1947, the committee renewed their investigations. Joseph McCarthy, a junior senator from Wisconsin, wanted to make a name for himself. And along with attorney Roy Cohn and senator, later president, Richard Nixon, the committee assured blacklisted individuals wouldn't work for years to come. Among those first listed, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, Catherine Hepburn, Gail Sondergaard, Melvin Douglas, and Frederick Marsh. Screenwriter Dalton Trumbo was branded a communist, but continued writing under different aliases and won Oscars. In 1956, when Robert Rich's name was called for The Brave One, no one accepted the award, causing suspicions to rise. Trumbo, under the name Sam Jackson, wrote the screenplay for Spartacus, which parallels the HUAC hearings. Arthur Miller's play, The Crucibles, is an allegory of these witch hunts. So... If you ever had to read The Crucible, you know, sure or the, the play, at least, by Miller, you can blame Roy Cohn and Joe McCarthy. Um, <laughs> now, one particularly cowardly actor, Adolf Minju, cooperated with the committee, Huak, and named names. The named this people, bastard. Yeah, yeah. And the named people were interrogated publicly. Their careers were shattered. Ten brave actors and screenwriters protested this and refused to name names. They included Iva Bessie, Herman Biberman, Lester Cole, Edward Dimitrik, Ring Larder Jr., John Howard Larson, Albert Maltz, Samuel Ornitz, Adrian Scott, and Dalton Trumbo. Huak punished these brave people by subpoenaing the shit out of all of them and calling them before Congress. They were asked the now famous question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? All but one refused to answer the question. The House of Representatives held them in contempt. The Screen Actors Guild was forced to make its members swear oaths of loyalty to the United States. And members what of the Hollywood- What a crazy thing to do! Yeah, yeah. Uh, a union for workers have to- Yeah. Because like, unions are commie things. You gotta, you gotta show that you're loyal to the United States if you're gonna be a union. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was great. Members of the Hollywood Ten weren't allowed to resume their careers until they had sworn uh, the oath and been cleared of any involvement in the Communist Party. Many of the Hollywood Ten served one-year prison sentences. Uh, it's not cool. It's it's a bad time that that all this happens. And this is also, by the way, why Charlie Chaplin stops becoming a major figure in Hollywood because he right. kind of leaves the country and can't be in movies for a while because he's seen as being a, a dirty commie. They robbed um, us of a lot of really important talent and again, yes. very unfairly targeted a lot of the Jewish population Ooh, because yeah. that's what Hollywood is where the Jews hang out. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, now, Joe McCarthy was not a member of HUAC, although Richard Nixon was, and he was a part of all of this. But the committee's tactics served as the blueprint for what would come to be known as his, to history as McCarthyism. By 1954, Senator McCarthy had launched his own crusade to ferret communist agents and homosexuals out of the U.S. government. Roy Cohn <laughs> was his chief counsel. Now, does it seem weird to you that Cohn and McCarthy would use the power of the Senate to hunt down both gays and communists? Welcome to bit. the Lavender Scare. Have you heard of the Lavender Scare? Oh, I know all about the Lavender yeah. Scare. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is some good shit. And by good shit, I mean uh, terrible shit. Um, it's bad. It started in 1950 <sighs> when Senator McCarthy had held up a list during a speech in West Virginia and claimed that the names of 205 card-carrying communists who worked in the State Department were on it. A few weeks later, the Deputy Undersecretary of State had testified to the Senate Appropriations Committee that his department did not hire communists, but that they had fired a number of people for being security risks, mm -hmm. including 91 homosexuals. This sparked mass panic within the government, and a month later, congressional Republicans ordered an investigation into the homosexual 
sexual problem and the infiltration of sexual perverts in government. Now, first it of just all, so happened. fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not great whenever large political parties start talking about Group X problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah, not not great. Um, so it just so happens that Roy Cohn was super gay. Like, real, real, very much, very, very much gay. And, and Joe McCarthy, also probably pretty gay. Um, mm, and, mm. yeah. Uh, and again, Roy is... Like Roy is famous later in his life for taking a new lover every single day, like like young male prostitutes, like every single day. Like and and at this point in time, he is gay, and so is probably <laughs> McCarthy. And not just that, but before like all of these trials get going in earnest, um, Roy Cohn gets together with one of Joe McCarthy's with an aide that he and Joe McCarthy had hired that both he and McCarthy had a gigantic crush on, and. Cohn and this guy travel around Europe uh, looking for, like, in military bases, they have, like, libraries and shit, looking for communist books in libraries and, like, also just traveling around Europe together and going yeah, to like bars what? and clubs and fucking. Yeah. yeah. Like, like they're, they're, you know, they're partying and, and making love by night and banning books from, like, uh, State Department libraries by day for being communist. Like, it's a very weird honeymoon that those two have. It's so, like, it's, I really feel like this is a reaction of, like, if we don't get these other people, their yes. other people will come for us. Like, it's yeah. very much like, oh, we're, we're not gay. Ha ha, them over there. And the fact that you know all of the inside scoop, like if, if you're gay, especially in this time, even nowadays, you like know where the other gays are. You yeah. know where to go, you know what to look for, you know the trade secrets, you know the lingo. It is, unex- it is beyond immoral to like, oh, it's not just hard, incredibly your own evil. people, but then these people who are already scared and afraid for their lives, you just set them on fire. That's, ugh. Well, we'll talk about this a bit too. One of the things that's also extra evil about all this is that it's not just that Roy Cohn and probably Joe McCarthy are gay. It's that most of their fellow Congress people who are persecuting the gay people that Cohn and McCarthy bring to them in, like, in Congress know that Cohn and McCarthy are gay. They make jokes about it. Like, but they're also not punishing them and punishing other people. Like it's all, it's very bad. <laughs> because these are the gays we can trust. Yeah, these they don't are like themselves. This is yeah. this is the Candace Owens problem yeah. of today, where Candace Owens just clearly hates being black and black people so goddamn much that she'll do anything to make sure people know that she hates it. Yeah. It's, ridiculous it's wild because like family members who give interviews will say that roy would have done anything to hide his homosexuality from the public eye and at the same time a lot of people knew that he was gay while he was prosecuting other gay it's a very strange situation who was gonna cross him though if you're the king of gossip and you know all of the things also roquan being gay and the king of gossip is just sir yeah sir i can see you yeah what a ridiculous man okay perez hilton like calm down yeah (laughs) and one of the things that so there's debate historically over how much Joe McCarthy is the driver of the Red Scare and how much it's Roy Cohn manipulating mm. Joe McCarthy. Because McCarthy is, again, not just a, a drinker, but like, and not just an alcoholic, but like an alcoholic who cut his life short by like 30 years because of the Yikes. sheer shocking quantity he drank. So there are people who will argue that McCarthy 
was very easy for Cohn to manipulate and that the Red Scare was largely orchestrated by Cohn and that he just wanted McCarthy up front to kind of take the hits if it blew back on them, which is what happened. So again, people will make that argument and you can make it. There's also people who will say that, no, 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 McCarthy, while he was a drunk, was was as much a driver of this as Roy Cohn. I don't, I'm not an expert on either man, so I'm not going to weigh in there, but you, you can find people who will make either case. Um, yeah. So the panic over gay people and gay people being, you know, communist infiltrators came at a great time for Joe McCarthy uh, because the panic, this like the lavender scare started when it started to become clear that old tail gunner Joe, which was McCarthy's nickname, had no proof that any of the 205 names on that list that he, he held up were actually communists. And I'm going to quote from a paper uh, titled The Power of Masculinity by Leila Talley now, quote, to save face with his colleagues in the American public, he changed his tactics, calling out those he was unable to trace back to communism as being homosexual. This began what is now called the Lavender Scare. According to McCarthy, homosexuals presented a huge security risk because of the ease with which they could be blackmailed. Therefore, they could not be trusted to hold government jobs during a time when the threat of communist infiltration was so high. Although McCarthy was the man responsible for making the initial allegations, he was not the party responsible for rounding up the sexual deviants and questioning them. Clyde Hoey was recruited to lead the investigation, and according to the transcripts from the hearings, Roy Cohn was responsible for the majority of the questioning. Now, obviously, a lot of this questioning happened under wraps, but thankfully, some of the victims of the Lavender Scare later discussed what they experienced. And I'm going to quote from a write-up on the Lavender Scare in the Feminist Review, which describes the story of one Department of Commerce employee who was interrogated, probably by Roy Cohn. I mean, this is so you get an idea of what these interrogations were like. Let's hear it. Like all civil service employees working during the Eisenhower administration, Madeline Tress, a 24-year-old business economist at the Department of Commerce in Washington, D.C., was required to pass a security investigation as a condition for employment. At her position for only a few months on that April day in 1958, Madeline was led into a room by two male interrogators who began the interview by asking her a few mundane questions regarding her name, where she lived, and her date of birth. Miss Tress, one of the interrogators, then retorted, The commission has information that you are an admitted homosexual what comment do you wish to make regarding this matter? Shocked, Madeline froze and refused to answer the question. The men disclosed that they had reliable information that she had been seen frequenting a gay bar, the Redskins Lounge, and they named a number of her lesbian and gay male friends. One of the men then sneered, How do you like having sex with women? You've never had it good until you've had it from a man. Tormented into silence following the interrogation, she refused to sign a document admitting her alleged crime. And she, she quit the next day. As any sane person would listen if you're going it it shouldn't but it does add more insult to me that you went with the lamest most common thing lesbians here would like you never had a good dick sir they don't want your dick they never wanted it they're not interested yeah. please leave them alone it is again it, it, nothing that happens in america should be shocking to me and yet it's yeah. still always so upsetting to hear that you can be dragged into a room and berated within an inch of your life simply because yeah. maybe somebody saw you walking into a building. Yeah. And it, it's, I, I want to be clear here. Actually, that took place in 1958 and Cohn was out of the government at that point because of stuff that we'll ha talk about that happens later. But that's the kind of like, number one, he set that into motion. It continues for decades after he leaves mm -hmm. government. And that's what the interrogations were like. Like you can assume that's more or less like the ones Cohn carried out, even though we don't necessarily have mm -hmm. a ton of transcripts from those. Um, so the Lavender Scare was a calamity for the gay community in the 
1950s, which had enough problems on its hands as it was. Like, 1950s, already not an easy time to be gay. You don't need this shit. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. And now, it was also a calamity for a bunch of random straight people who got falsely accused. Hundreds of people lost their jobs. Unknown but significant numbers committed suicide due to the public shame. The long-term <sighs> fallout lasted more than two decades, and the federal government went so far as to calculate estimates of the total number of homosexuals in D.C. The number swung from 5,000 to 50,000, depending on who did the calculations. <laughs> Layla <What>? Tal- <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah, they think gay people breathe fire at this point, so we shouldn't be I'm surprised. Saying, an that, like, irrational yeah. fear if yeah. I've ever heard one. The idea yeah. that, like, none of them can keep a secret. Y'all are wild. Yeah. Layla Talley writes, quote, The Metropolitan Police were also asked to index the name, address occupation, and age of almost 5,000 suspected sex perverts in the area. A vice squad was created to investigate a possible link between homosexuality and communism, but the government never agreed that the two were related. The individuals <laughs> let go this time due to their sexuality were officially fired because they were uncommonly susceptible to blackmail. About 20% of the total United States workforce had been investigated and interviewed in the three-year period between when McCarthy named gays in the State Department and when President Eisenhower issued his order demanding all homosexuals be terminated from the U.S. government with Executive Order 10450. So again, because of this shit that Cohn and McCarthy start, 20% of the entire U.S. workforce gets interrogated for their possible homosexuality. 20%? That's yes. truly wild. Of the, I, of the nation's workforce. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, if you were Get out in the 50s, yourself. like, I am, I have to st stand and applaud your yeah. ability to stand in the face of that kind of oppression. I've, I've lived through Prop 8 and through Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Yeah. And I, I thought all of that was harrowing. I had no, I, I knew about the Lavender Scare. I had no idea that it extended that far and affected that much of the entire population of the United yeah. States. Harrowing stuff, man. He, I mean, like, and this is the thing, like, you talk about Roy Cohn. He affected millions of people's lives yeah. because, of, like, just at this point, just because of this shit that he starts – now, during this whole period, Roy was the government's main anti-gay attack dog. He was the guy Joe McCarthy sent in to carry out interrogations, possibly including, you know, including a lot of interrogations. And Roy was not living the repressed life of a self-hating gay man during this period. In fact, it was literally the opposite. He spent his nights out at a rotating carousel of gay bars. He had sex with men constantly, but he denied that made him the same as the gay men he spent his days persecuting. Oh, not this fucker. Yeah. Listen. Roy what? had sex with other men every single day day of his life basically and also never considered himself gay bro um, first of all everybody's a little gay everybody yeah second of all so yes. come on my guy come my on the, level of the repression and mental gymnastics to pull that yeah. off to be yeah. like i know i'm attracted and i'm gonna sleep with but well it doesn't make me gay sir what is your definition of gay what are you doing he wouldn't even say that he was attracted to men. He preferred to say that he said he all he would say is that he preferred to, quote, expend his sexual energies on men, but not women. Like, Bro, he's into, he's my into dude. the whole, like, I, I am positive he's my into dude. the whole Roman idea of like, oh, it's more masculine to take a man. I know yeah. that he was a power top and it's disturbing and disgusting. Yeah, it's not cool. I mean, it's not, it's fine to be a power top, but it's not cool to do what Roy's doing. Um, and he would also tell anyone who asked that he was no pansy. Uh, quote, I hate by this, him. Oh. He's, he's, a, he's a terrible person. Like, again, his friends said that he was the embodiment.
embodiment of human evil. The people who liked him, like, said that. So, oh yeah. Quote, he'd tell anyone who asked that he was no pansy, and by this, quote, he meant that even though he engaged in sexual relations with men, he did not consider himself to be homosexual because he was a better man than that. During the actual Senate hearings pertaining to the higher risk of employing homosexuals, Cohn was often condescendingly and accusatory in his line of questioning. McCarthy, who presided over most of the hearings, allowed this line of questioning with no objections. In the case of Eric L. Kohler, for example, Cohn delved into Mr. Kohler's personal life and presented personal letters that had absolutely nothing to do with his job as evidence. Cohn also used the technique of frequently repeating Mr. Kohler's responses to him for emphasis and intimidation. By questioning Mr. Kohler in this manner, Cohn was able to easily confuse Kohler and made him appear to be lying. He's a very abusive guy. He's a bitch ass. Like, fundamentally, just an abusive, bad person. I would but, like a collection of essays from yeah. as many people as he slept with as possible so that I can understand the experience of being with somebody who hates themselves. Yeah, like, you can. The idea, <laughs> sorry, there, Sorry, there's two good documentaries. One is Where's My Roy Cohn? And one is um, Bully Coward Victim, I think is the name of it, which is another oh. documentary about Roy Cohn. And that, we'll, we'll explain <laughs> why it says that. that. Oh, we'll explain okay. why it says that title. We'll, there's there's actually a good reason behind why that title is what it is. Um, but yeah, uh, th- th- and they talk to, at least one of those has an interview with with one or two of his his former like uh, sexual partners. I don't know if lovers oh. is the right term because nope. I'm not sure that Roy Cohn It sounds to me that Roy was the kind of gay who was like, well, and, and we saw this more in yeah. the 90s, probably because of Roy Cohn's influence, but the idea yep. That if you're not falling in love with the people you're having sex with, then that's not your. It's not gay. <laughs> your your sexual. Uh, I forget how we title these things, yeah. but yeah, then that makes you not gay. Uh, which is again bananas. It's bananas. If you're attracted yeah. strictly to no. males and you do not want to have sex with females, that is yeah. just categorically you're gay. Yes, it's okay and it's great. And it's fine. That's perfectly fine. But if you are a man who exclusively has sex with other men every day of your life you should it's you're gay like and it's fine roy it would have been fine if you hadn't been such a piece of shit to everybody you know the gay community really we love we love other gays man you could have yeah. been in here getting in on this love fest like well not after the liked. lavender scare <laughs> no before that before that you could have yeah. made a choice to be proud yeah. of who you were yeah. and been accepted and loved and instead you know you made yeah. some choices he made some choices. Now, obviously, the damage that Cohn helped to do during the Lavender Scare was incalculable. But you know what damage isn't incalculable? Uh-oh. Joel. What kind? The damage done by our products and services to your wallet. Hey! Hey! <laughs> A segue. <laughs> Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Ah, we're back. So, we're talking about Roy Cohn and the horrible, horrible impact of his 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 crimes on the world. Uh, all over the nation, <laughs> Americans, particularly Americans working in the government, started spying on each other as a result of the Red Scare that Cohn and McCarthy kicked up. They were spying not just to see who might be a Red, but to see who might be gay. And in fact, some people will make the case that the entire national security establishment that we have now the espionage state that is, you know, spying one way or another in all of our communications was started by Conan McCarthy, that they they are the reasons for like everything that Snowden uncovered about the NSA, that that ball got rolling because of McCarthy and Cohn. Um, I, I don't know if that that's, you know, a comprehensive case that you can make, but some people will argue it now. Yeah. And again, it was, you know, it, it starts this avalanche of paranoia within American culture. And in one particularly absurd case, a woman accused her boss of being a lesbian on the basis that she had peculiar lips, not large, but oddly shaped, quote, a funny feeling. The fact that this woman was single and the fact that she had spent a lot of time in China. Um, so, oh. like, yeah, like that's the sort of like people are like one person is like this woman is accused of being a lesbian and a communist because she has very little in the way of hips. Like that's <laughs> that's the kind of the kind of shit that starts coming out at this point. Um, Yikes. Yeah, the whole of America goes kind of fucking bonkers. So during this whole period of the Lavender Scare, Cohn was also helping his boss carry out the Red Scare because, again, everyone with power just sort of decided that gay and communist were synonyms. It was usually Cohn's job during, you know, interrogations in the committee to ask the question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? After the 1952 elections, the Republicans won control of both houses of Congress for the first time in a generation. McCarthy became the chairman of the Senate Committee on Government Operations and its subcommittee on investigations. This allowed him to expand his search outside the State Department to other government agencies and to the broadcasting and defense industries. He started prowling around university faculties in the United Nations. Wherever McCarthy and Cohn went, their investigations shattered careers and lives. What they didn't find were communist sleeper agents. The whole affair came to a disastrous conclusion in 1954, largely as a result of Roy Cohn's horniness. G. David <laughs> Shine had been one of McCarthy's aides and Roy Cohn's big-time crush, and in fact, probably both men had a big crush on David Shine, but he was definitely Cohn's boyfriend. This is the guy he was traveling around Europe with, David Got Shine. It. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, Shine was drafted in 1953. Either out of genuine affection or out of a desire to make sure that a hot guy didn't get mangled in a war, Roy and 
immediately <laughs> tried to intercede on Shine's behalf to the army. He first tried to convince them to commission his friend as an officer. The army said no, because he didn't have any skills that would, you know, justify commissioning him. So Cone demanded that Shine get extra leave so he could go home and fuck Roy more often. Shockingly, the army did not agree to do this either. <laughs> now, Joe McCarthy was just as enraged as Cone because, again, Joe was also kind of had a, a hot, the hots for this guy. And rather than accept that their friend had to do his time in the service, Cone and McCarthy accused the army of drafting Shine in retaliation for their attempts to uncover communists hiding in the military. The investigation they carried out on the U.S. Army lasted two months. And one of the really bizarre things about it is that you get the feeling, again, everyone involved knew that Cone and McCarthy were gay and doing this to get a lover out of the service. Congressmen joke about Roy Cohn being a fairy in like you can find video of this. Like they, wow, yeah. While he is, yeah, it's it's really something else. Um, it's very gross. It's one of those things you almost feel you start to feel sorry for Cohn for a second during that part of the video, and then you realize like, oh, you persecuted thousands of gay men. Like fuck you, Roy. Like, yeah, no, no, I'm not gonna feel you. bad for you. Yeah. Did you, uh, I, it, well, and like you made it this sham, right? Yeah. Like you, you put yourself You're in You're why this, this is happening. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like before gays were just persecuted by the religious and now mm-hmm. they have to worry about their entire government coming down on their house. Fuck you forever, dude. Yeah. Ugh. You piece of shit. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. The army spokesman referred to Shine and Cone snidely as warm personal friends, to which Roy responded, mm. he is one of my many good friends, sir. Yes. The courtroom behind him laughed uneasily in response because they knew what was being discussed. We have transcripts from the investigation, and I want to read from them now. It starts with one fellow, Mr. Adams, being questioned by the army about a conversation he witnessed between Roy Cohn and Senator McCarthy. Mr. Adams, I said, let's talk about Shine. That started a chain of events, an experience similar to none which I have had in my life. Mr. Cohn became extremely agitated, became extremely abusive. He cursed me, and then Senator McCarthy. The abuse went in waves. He would be very abusive, and then it would kind of abate, and things would be friendly for a few moments. Everyone would eat a little bit more, and then it would start in again. It just kept on. I was trying to catch a 130 train, but Mr. Cohn was so violent by then that I felt I had better not do it and leave him that angry with me and that angry with Senator McCarthy because of a remark I had made. So I stayed and missed my 1.30 train. I thought surely I would be able to get out of there by 2.30. The luncheon concluded. And then at this point, someone named Mr. Jenkins, who's a member of the committee, asks him, you said you were afraid to leave Senator McCarthy alone there with him? Mr. Adams, what did he say? You said he was very abusive. Mr. Adams, he was extremely abusive. Mr. Jenkins asks, was or not any obscene language used? Mr. Adams, <laughs> yes. Mr. Jenkins, just admit that and tell me what he did say which constituted abuse in your opinion. Mr. Adams, I have stated before, sir, the tone of the voice has as much to do with abuse as the words. I do not remember the phrases. I do not remember the sentences, but I do remember the violence. Mr. Jenkins, do you remember the subject? Mr. Adams, the subject was shine. The subject was the fact, the thing that Cohn was angry about, the thing that he was so violent about was the fact that one, the army was not agreeing to an assignment for shine, and two, that Senator McCarthy was not supporting his staff in its efforts to get shine assigned to New York. So his abuse was directed partly to me and partly to Senator McCarthy. As I say, it kind of came in waves. There would be a period of extreme abuse, and then there would be a period where it would almost get back to normal, and ice cream would be ordered. And then about halfway through that, a little more of the same. I missed the 2.30 train also. 
This, this violence continued. It was a remarkable thing. At first, Senator McCarthy seemed to be trying to conciliate. He seemed to be trying to conciliate Cohn and not to state anything contrary to what he had stated to me in the morning. But then he more or less lapsed into silence. So I went down to room 101. Mr. Cohn was there and Mr. Carr was there. As I remember, we lunched together in the Senate cafeteria and everything was peaceful. When we returned to room 101, toward the later part of the conversation I asked Cohn, I knew that 90% of all inductees ultimately face overseas duty, and I knew that one day we were going to face that problem with Mr. Cohn as to Shine. So I thought I would lay a little groundwork for future trouble, I guessed. I asked him what would happen if Shine got overseas duty. Mr. Jenkins. You mean you were breaking the news gently, Mr. Adams? Mr. Adams. Yes, sir, that is right. I asked him what would happen if Shine got overseas duty. He responded with vigor and force. Stevens is through as secretary is the army of the army. I said, oh, Roy, something to this effect. Oh, Roy, don't say that. Come on, really. What is going to happen if, Sh- if Shine receives overseas duty? Cohn responded with even more force. We will wreck the army. Okay. So there's a lot there. (laughs) America said, skirt, what? Yeah. (laughs) You can't turn the same victory you used on communists and throw it at the army, Roy. You've lost sight of the goal here. You've lost sight of the goal and also have gone after the one thing that Americans actually consider sacred, which is our army. And like, yeah, that's not going to end well for you, Roy. Um, Mm -hmm. You can go after a bunch of powerless gay people and accuse communists, but if you attack the army, things are going to end badly. But what I think is really fascinating there is, because there's, again, this debate over was Joe McCarthy the driving force behind the Red Scare or was it Cohn driving him? And that mm. transcript makes me think that the people saying it was Roy have a point because that right. that is textbook abusive behavior. That is absolutely the textbook of like he's screaming at you, he's screaming at you and then he's nice and he's normal and things get back to normal and then he starts you screaming ice and it's cream. Yeah, and you get ice cream and like he's, He's he's doing that thing that abusive people do, to, like abusive mm-hmm. partners do. And I don't know, I don't think he and McCarthy had any sort of romantic connection, but I do think that emotionally they kind of had that that sort of thing going on. And Roy is basically vacillating between when you make me angry in the slightest, I will become so horribly abusive to you that this guy, Mr. Adams, who's like an army dude, um, is is horrified by how cruel I am to you. And then everything will be nice and normal and we'll be friends again. And then if you say anything that's it, like... Yeah, and you see the chaos and confusion that yeah. caused for this poor guy who's like, I couldn't even tell you what was being said. I yeah. just know I was afraid. I was and just that- <laughs> struck by the violence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, woof, woof. I, I can't feel bad yeah. for McCarthy because you allowed yourself to be No, paid, no, no, no. Boy, Fuck Joe McCarthy. What yeah. a way to hand your... <laughs> And it's, what a person to hand your career over to. One of the things that is striking about this, I have to assume this guy, Mr. Adams, is like a pretty normal man for his time and position. <laughs> right. But that's a very nuanced and like complicated understanding of an abusive personality that he just laid out to Congress. Like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and to be able to like, I feel like a lot of men would have been like, oh well, he was just yelling and yeah, you, know, just you know yelling. how guys get sometimes. No, but for him to be like, nope, it was dangerous, and it so was, I put myself in the line of danger yeah. to try to protect. I this couldn't other leave McCarthy alone with him. Yeah. Oh man, that's a really big yeah. thing to do. I think. I think the thing the thing that Adams recognizes that I'm most impressed with is. The understanding that, like, no, it doesn't matter what he said. It's the way he said it. It's the mm-hmm. violence with which he said it that was mm-hmm. that was the, the the disturbing thing. That's a really kind of an impressive recognition for a 50s dude, you know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Um, anyway, that's episode one of Roy Cohn. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fun guy. 
Ugh, bitch God, ass. Horrible. Yeah, we're going to talk about the conclusion of the Red Scare and also the conclusion of Roy's life, which unfortunately happens many decades later after a lot more fucking around. We'll be talking about trains. We'll be talking about Reagan. It's going to be great. It's going to be terrible. We're going to be talking about trains, like choo-choo. Lots of trains. Lots of trains. Toy trains. They're coming back. He comes from train money. Toy train money. (laughs) Yeah. Joelle, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh... Not really. I'm Joelle Monique. You can find me all over the internet at Joelle Monique. That's J-O-E-L-L-E-M-O-N-I-Q-U-E. If you're not following her, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get into my Beyonce love. Beyonce. <laughs> all right. Well, that's the end of the episode. Joelle, thank you for talking with me about Roy Cohn. A uh, fun guy who's <laughs> super fun. Robert, thank you for breaking it down. Uh, please, please, I really feel like you're going to appreciate the animated musical cartoon they did over at uh, The Real Fight. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and also, listeners, go watch it. It's on YouTube. It's like three minutes, but it's basically all the goodness Robert gave you condensed into three minutes, and it makes Roy Kwan look stupid and hilarious, and that's always fun. Yeah. Robert, Yay. do you have anything you want to plug? No, I've never done anything in my entire life. Other than this exact episode of this podcast. It's my only my only completed work. Oh, oh, Uprising. Yeah, I've got a I also did one other thing. It's a podcast about the um the protests, the BLM movement and the the fighting with right wing uh, uh, fascist paramilitaries in Portland over the summer and uh, in autumn of 2020. Uh, it's called Uprising, a guide from Portland. Uh, check it out. It'll be out Absolutely. by the time this episode drops. Yeah. Absolutely vital listening. Check it out. I can't wait. All right. Uh, that's episode one. Yep. Whoop, whoop. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.